Grab a seat, church. Did everybody get a handout? If you would like one, there is some on the back table, and there's some, uh, my outline is on there, some fill in the blanks, and also the discussion questions, so you can grab one of those. There's also some downstairs as well. Uh, we, we all have moments in life of, of undoing. We have moments where um, who we thought we were is exposed to and revealed to not be true. What we thought was true about ourselves, or what we projected to be true about ourselves, or what we wanted other people to think was true about ourselves, all kind of gets teared off, torn off. I think the best analogy for this is probably the biblical one, and that is the fig leaves. In Genesis, God created man and, um, and, and woman, and he placed them in the garden, and he, he gave them everything they needed to be secure and confident and, and have joy. And then when sin entered the picture uh, through a choice to not believe God and the world was wrecked and, and, and really transformed into this Genesis 3 uh, world, what was the first thing Adam and Eve did? They, they hid themselves. They couldn't. They couldn't interface with the purity and the holiness of the presence of God. They, they knew there was something about them all of a sudden that needed to be covered. You know, from, from birth, right, we, we, we start to, slowly as we grow up, we start to sense that reality. I, I love little kids because they just don't, they don't quite see shame yet, right? They don't quite carry shame yet. They're not, they're not embarrassed. We went, recently went to a concert with Trevor and Christina and at 4th of July, and it was just like all the kids were down in front just like dancing like goofballs. And I was just thinking like, man, with all the drunk people, it's kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> the drunk people are like, well, no, everyone thinks I'm cool. Like, no, you're just drunk, right? But the, but the kids, like, they just don't care. They don't care. They, they don't have that shame yet. And then as we grow and as we get older, we start to realize there's something wrong with me. And it's not just a social construct, is it? It's not just my friends make fun of me or there's this thing about me that's odd or, or awkward or broken. Or it's, it's there's something wrong with me ontologically, something in my very being that's often I feel shameful about it, I feel off about it. And as we get older, we just become more and more and more controlled by this, this, this shame about who we are. And it's, it's the fig leaves, it's the very thing that happened in the garden. When Adam and Eve, they sinned and God comes and he says, where are you? And they're hiding. They're hiding because they know that they're, they're naked. And it's not about their nakedness. It's about the fact that they know there's something wrong with them and that they can't be in the presence of God. So what do they do? They sow for themselves these fig leaves, which I think is, is really analogous for these coverings that we try to put on, right? I mean, it's just like our whole, especially like junior high and high school, it's just like, how do I cover up the fact that I don't like who I am? How do I cover up the fact that I don't feel right, that I don't feel accepted, that I don't feel like enough? And so we just sow these fig leaves. And the reality is, what happened at Genesis 3, what happened in the garden when sin entered into the world, man went from the top of the mountain, the garden, a place of transcendence, a place of, of connectivity to God, and, and the fall was literally that, it was a fall. He fell down into the valley, into this place of disconnect from God. And our deepest condition as humans is that we are disconnected from the source of life, from God. And we sow fig leaves to cover ourselves up. And, and, and not only do we sow fig leaves, we try to climb back up the mountain, don't we? We know we need to get back to God. Now, whether we know that on a subconscious level or on a, on a revelatory level, we know we're trying to get back to God. And so we climb through our own self-effort and through our own lives. This is what we do. Now, what God has to do in order to bring us to a place of salvation is he has to get us to admit our brokenness. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying. I mean, you, you know, you've read that moment in life where, where what you thought was secret all of a sudden became exposed? You thought you had this thing sort of airtight, under wraps, nobody knows about it, and then all of a sudden it becomes public? It's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's gut-churning, right? Because the reality of who you are now has come into the world, and it's, and it's, and it's seen. And so we, we sow more fig leaves. But what God needed to do was he needed to dress them. He needed to dress Adam and Eve. And in order to do that, he needed to undo their, their coverings and their, and their false uh, clothes that they had sort of stitched for themselves. Now, we're really good as humans. We're really good at finding ways to not deal with the shame of, of who we really are, 
on the inside. Um, our culture has told us, experimentally, uh, has told us that if you just love yourself enough, that it will actually undo your shame. Have you ever been told that? Disney tells us that all the time, right? Hey, the problem is not that you are, the problem is not that you have shame. The problem is you just don't love yourself enough. You just need to love yourself. You just need to see yourself accurately. Let me ask you, how's that working? See, the problem is you, you, you can love yourself all you want, but at the end of the day, that brokenness is still there. Um, some people, they, they go a different route. They say, maybe I'll just change the nature of God's expectation for me. Then I'll feel acceptable. So rather than um, changing anything about myself, I'll just lower the bar. God doesn't care about my sin. In fact, maybe there is no God. There, now I can be acceptable. But the problem is you're still, you still don't feel accepted. Maybe I'll just change morality. Maybe I'll just outwork or outpace my shame. Anybody do that here? Maybe if I just cover it with enough doing, then I won't have to deal with that deep ache inside of who I am. Maybe I hide it. Maybe I cover it with narcotics. That's what a lot of people do, and there's a lot of different narcotics. They're not all drugs. Some of them are Netflix. Some of them are ice cream, right? Uh, some, some of them are accomplishing. There's a, a million and one ways to sow fig leaves, and the reason we sow fig leaves is because we have fallen from the mountain. We are not in the presence of God. We are not acceptable in the presence of God, and we know it, okay? That's the reality. Now, what we need is we need to recognize that there is no getting back up the mountain. There is none. There's no get. We have fallen from this place where we belonged, and, and there is no getting back up the mountain. Sam, that's really bad news. If there's no getting back up the mountain, then what is the good news this morning? The good news is, is that the mountain has come down. The good news is that, that even though we cannot get back right with God, God has come down to us in the form of Jesus Christ and is bringing us back to him. This morning, the author, um, he needs his, his, his audience to be undone. He needs them to see the, that, that they're just sowing more fig leaves. He needs them to see that they're not getting back up the mountain to God uh, effectively. Here's the backstory, and you, if you've been coming for a while, you, you've heard this ad nauseum, but you need to hear it again. Here's the backstory of the letter of Hebrews. The, the author probably planted this church, probably uh, first witnessed the gospel to these believers, and and as they've begun to grow, persecution has begun to creep into the world, and Christians are beginning to feel the heat of, of following Jesus, and their, their ethnic Jews, so their ethnic Jewish community is sort of um, disowning them. And so stuff's getting really hard. And as stuff is getting really hard, they're beginning to drift away from Christ as their hope and to drift back into the Judaism, the system of religion that Judaism had become. They're going, you know, maybe we could go back to the old ways where we had, uh, where we had synagogue and we had the temple and we had the priesthood and, and we had all of these, these components of this tried and true kind of old guard religious system. That, that, and if we did that, then our, our families would reaccept us and, and we could reemerge back into society. And so they're, they're drifting away. And the author of Hebrews is, is waving his arms like a good pastor going, don't drift Here's some of the things he's calling the audience to in, the, in this book. He's called them to, to tie up your mooring lines. Your, your boat is drifting from the dock. You need to tie it up. You need to re-secure your lines back to Christ. He's used all kinds of different metaphors. One of the metaphors he's used is that of a race. He's like the Christian life is an endurance race. Keep running. Keep running. Look at all those that have run before you. Look at the one who ran it perfectly for you, Jesus. Keep running the race. He's called them to hold fast to Christ, to draw near to Christ. This whole book is, is the author of Hebrews trying to re-secure the faith that is drifting and, and, and is, is diluted, They're, to re-secure the faith of the Hebrew Christians back to the person of Jesus Christ exclusively. And he's doing that through building up the confidence of the audience as to why Jesus is superior to any man-made religious system, in particular Judaism. It's the whole idea of the book of Hebrews. So what we're going to see in our passage today is we're going to see probably one of the most poetic and interesting juxtapositions or contrasts of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the way the author is going to do this is very clever. He's going to take two biblical ideas or types, 
Okay, you know what a type is? A type is a picture of something that will later fulfill it. There's types and there's anti-types. He's going to take two biblical types that just so happen to be mountains, which is awesome because I love mountains. Uh, Two biblical types, and he's going to use them to represent the old covenant under Moses and the new covenant under Christ. And he's going to contrast these two mountains. So if you have your handout and you want to fill it in, the the two mountains are this. The first, Roman Roman numeral number one, is the mountain of Sinai. Okay, the mountain of Sinai. And then the second mountain we'll get to is the mountain of Zion. Mountain of Sinai and the mountain of Zion. So if you want to outline this, 18 through 21, he's going to unpack for us what the mountain of Sinai represents. And then in 22 through 24, he's going to show the superiority of what Mount Zion is and what that represents. You ever seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life? Okay, uh, you know, Jimmy Stewart thinks that maybe his life isn't so great. And so what does he do? He prays to, you know, the star whatever God and, um, you know, the little blinking light in the sky. And, and he says, it'd be better that I wasn't born or whatever. And so the, the whole story is like at the end is like he sees what his life would look like if he never uh, existed. He sees what the world would look like if he never existed. Okay, and of course, you know, the whole world fell apart without Jimmy Stewart, um, you know, because we got to have Jimmy Stewart. Um, anyways, so he, he gets to see how bad it would be, and that's kind of what this text is going to do for us this morning. It's sort of going to take the audience that thinks, you know, Judaism was awesome. This old covenant was great. Maybe we need to go back to that, and he's going, oh, really? Let me show you just how great this old covenant thing was, and then, and then let me show you how great you actually have it in the new covenant. Because I want you to see what you are, that you're not missing anything. I want you to be thankful and grateful for the new covenant. So that's kind of what he's going to do with this contrast. So let's dive right in. We'll start with the, mount, the mountain of Sinai in verse 18. Let me just read 18 through 21. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So the first thing I need you to see here is that word touched in verse 18. He says, you have not, you have not come to that which may be touched. What he's saying is, is he's saying that the the system of of, uh, connectivity to God that you are now in is immaterial. It's not physical. It's not something that you can touch. And he's saying this because he knows that their temptation here is to, to drift back to what seems more tangible. What, what I mean by that is, is this idea of kingdom and heaven and the future return of Christ and all. That's so ethereal, right? So spiritual, so floaty, so future. And they're looking around. They're like, there's a synagogue right here. There's a temple right there. There's a priest right here. This is physical. I can touch it. It's tangible. We should go to that. What he's trying to get them to see here is he's, he's, saying, he's trying to get them to say, but your faith needs to be rooted not in what is immediately accessible, but what is future and what is greater reality. Now, if you remember from last week, Ryan, Pastor Ryan taught us the previous section in which he said, don't be like Esau, who, who did what? What did Esau do? He traded his entire future blessing for what? For a bowl of soup. Okay. What that tells us about Esau was that he was so hyper-focused on just being full right now, and he was so deeply unaware of the value of the, ver- the thing that he traded in, his future, that he just traded it away. So what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going I'm to trade the very valuable thing in the future for the thing that seems to be really important right now, but it has abs- absolutely no value. And what he wants them to, to see is he's saying, look, don't trade in the future riches of heaven for something that is right now tangible. And here's the reality. You guys know this was written in around 60 AD in the 60 AD region. What happened a few years after this to the temple? It was destroyed. It's like a bowl of soup. They're, they're thinking about leaving the gospel and Christ and future riches of heaven for a big, impressive temple made by Herod that's about to be destroyed and laid waste by Rome. 
So, so it would be a waste. So he's saying, listen, don't cling on to that which is seen. This has been a theme throughout the book. If you remember Hebrews 11, verse 1, we learned that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. What that means is, is that Christian faith sees that which is not yet here and not yet tangible as ultimate reality. That's what a Christian is. A Christian's like, I'm going to put all my chips, all my weight, all my faith, all my hope in the thing that's coming and the thing that is unseen rather than live my life for a bowl of soup right now. That's the Christian life. That's faith. Faith is living for what is not fully yet seen. So he's drawing them to see that. Uh, and then, now, so, so first, if you want to fill it in, uh, the mountain of Sinai is first, uh, it was tangible. The mountain of Sinai was tangible. Number two, and this is important, the mountain of Sinai was terrible. The mountain of Sinai was terrible. He wants them to see this. He says, he's let me paint for you the picture of exactly what it looks like to be under the old covenant. He's like, you think the, you think the old covenant's great? You really want to go back? You think that's great? Let me take you to the glory days. He says, let me take you back to Sinai. Let me take you back to the place where it all first went down. The place where God led his people out of Egypt and through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And he paints this very poetic and bleak and terrifying picture of what it looked like for man to try to interface with God in the wilderness. Listen to what he says. He says, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, speaks of purity and holiness, and darkness and gloom and a tempest. This is very expressive language that is meant to paint a picture for them of the terror of what it would have been like for the Israelites to live in the wilderness in the presence of God. Now, just put yourself in the, in the shoes of, of the Israelites for a moment. You grew up in Egypt, you grew up in the world, and you don't know a lot about Yahweh other than he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made this promise to Abraham. You, you sort of grew up hearing these things, uh, uh, you know, the oratory tradition. They hadn't been codified yet in, in the first five books of the Bible, and, and you heard some about this Yahweh, and then, and then Moses shows up, and all of a sudden this God who, has, who, who sort of owns your people uh, says, I, I'm going to free you, and I'm going to draw you out into the wilderness so that you can worship me. And, and Pharaoh, the most powerful superpower in the world at the time, says, not going to happen. So this God that they don't know very well yet, this I am, begins to pour out wrath on the Egyptians, plague after plague after plague, each plague representing that God was sovereign and powerful over the gods of the Egyptians. And he, he flexes on Egypt. He shows his power to Egypt to the point where they finally let him go. And then you, you know the story. I'm not going to get into it. They, they finally get through the Red Sea that God parts with his might and power. And all of a sudden, God appears to the Israelites, and he does it in a few ways. First, he, he leads them with a, a pillar of cloud and fire. And then he appears on the top of Mount Sinai, this, this mountain out in the wilderness. And he appears, and it's terrifying. It's terrifying. There's no, there's no two ways about it. God appears to these guys, and it's terrifying. Now, we need to ask the question here, why is God's presence here terrifying? Isn't in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy? Have you thought about that? Why is the God, I mean, some, some people have a really hard time with this, right? Like, was the God in the Old Testament just a jerk? Like, was he grumpy? Like, why is the God of the Old Testament so mean? Why is the God of the Old Testament in Sinai show up and it's terrifying and it's dark and it's gloomy and there's fire and it's scary? And if anybody even gets close to the mountain, they, they have to be stoned. I mean, what in the world is that all about? Why is God's depre- uh, presence depicted as so unpleasant? Let me just give you a couple things here. First of all, unbridled, omnipotent, and uncontainable raw power is terrifying. Get in a spaceship, if you have one lying around. Like, I mean, you know, like you do. Get in a spaceship. You guys, you guys like the sun? Isn't it great? I mean, don't you love it? Like today after church when I go to the park or something, some of you guys are going to the coast, like you might, you know, you might get some vitamin D. You know, maybe you, have, maybe you guys have solar panels in your house. Isn't the sun great? Are you growing a garden right now? Don't you love the sun? It's growing all your fruit. Isn't that great? Love the sun. Sun's awesome. Get in a spaceship and fly as close to the sun as you can get, what's going to happen? You're going to die. The sun is very powerful. And it's a blessing if you have the right interface. In our case, the right interface is, um, you know, that thing that goes around the globe. What is it called? Um, protects us. Atmosphere. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a pastor, not a scientist. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 
the, 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 the magical force that keeps it. Okay, if you have the right interface, the sun will not cook you. If you get too close to the sun, the sun will cook you. Here's the reality about the sun, guys. You know it's not the biggest one out there? <laughs> I mean, isn't that crazy? And, and, and actually, the sun is microscopic compared to the universe, the vastness of the universe. And here's the even more crazy thing, that, that something had to make that force. Something far greater. Something that actually transcends time, space, and matter. A mind that has such a powerful will and such powerful sovereign, sovereignty over created matter that it can speak suns into existence. Do you think, do you think God is powerful? So if, you, you know, if they went out into Mount Sinai and there was this little fat, bald guy in a toga sitting up there, I am the Lord. That was not in my notes. I don't know why. Just Like, how, how worshipful would that be? God, God is just choosing to slice a tiny little slit for a second and a little, little bit of his glory be seen and manifest for the Israelites. And it looks like a terrifying power source on top of a mountain. So, so why is God so scary? Um, because he is so powerful. That's the reality. And he's only showing a little bit here. We need the right interface to interact with God's glory, right? That's, that's the reality. But there's, there's more here than just God's power. There's also God's holiness. See, it's not just that God's so powerful. It's that God is so pure. And we are so unpure. We are stained at a systemic level. We are stained to the core with evil. God cannot have any part with evil. He is holy, holy, holy. So you better believe that when a holy and powerful, omniscient, uncreated, glorious God appears to a group of sinful, broken, evil human beings, there better be some space. Right? There better be some space. So is God mean when he says, don't touch the mountain or you'll die? Or is that just reality? There's this thing we forgot about in our culture. It's called reality, and I don't think we like it. We'd rather just live in a delusion. Like, I don't like reality. Let's just make our own reality. Well, there is such a thing as reality, and there's a reality that God is so powerful and so holy that if you are in God's presence and you are not holy and you do not have the right interface, you will die. Just ask Jehu, right? The guy that touched the box when it was falling off the cart. He died. So this is the reality that the author's trying to get these guys to see. He's trying to say, hey, look, do you really want to go back to that mountain? Do you really want to go back to the mountain and see God? Uh, that there is no way for you to get to God, and it's actually terrifying. Now, it's not only a terrifying sight, it's also a terrifying sound. There's this trumpet, uh, some kind of a divine communication or call that, that assembles the people, and it's terrifying. It's terrifying. You know, whenever you know you did something wrong and someone says your name, you're like, what? Right? Like, Sam, what I do? I didn't do it, I swear. Like, you know, that's, you know, you did something wrong. So the, the trumpet here, I think it's, it's, it's revealing that, that they, uh-oh, are we in trouble? Uh, and then there's this voice, okay? It says that they're, they're wishing that the voice of God would cease. Now, I need you to remember exactly what's happening at this particular point in time. Uh, this is when God delivered the law, the Ten Commandments, but this is also the same exact moment, because you might be asking, why is God so angry? It's the same exact moment that the Israelites took the gifts that God gave them from the Egyptians, boiled them into a nice golden calf, and worshipped it. So God got Egypt out of or God got Israel out of Egypt, but he had not yet gotten, God got Israel out of Egypt, but he had not yet gotten Egypt out of Israel. Thank you. I'm having a hard time this morning. Oh, in my weakness. Thank you. Um, yeah, so, so the reality is these guys are idolatrous. They are the very thing that, the, that they were meant to be pulled out of. They are still worldly. And so, yeah, God is delivering law, and as he's delivering law, they're going like this. Duh, stop. My son, he's eight years old. Um, he's been doing this funny, quirky little thing lately where um, when he's doing something wrong and I, and I start lecturing him about it, you know, I start very uh, clearly saying, son, here's, let me tell you why what you're doing is wrong. He goes, ah, can you just stop? I just, can you just stop, please? Can we be done? And I'm like, no. You're going to sit there and let me lecture you, right? <laughs> but what, why is he, why is he, he's just, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know. He's like, he, he knows he did something wrong. He knows he shouldn't have done that. He's already aware. He doesn't want me to tell him why it's wrong because we don't want to be exposed. And see, guys, here's the point. This is what the law does. The law rips our fig leaves. 
The law, the rules, if you will, which, which, which is just, wasn't just a bunch of made-up rules. It was rules that, ex- that, that literally exposed reality, that God's nature is this, and we are not part of that, that we are disconnected from that. The law exposes us, and it's terrifying. And that's why here the Israelites are like, can we stop, please? We don't want to hear this anymore because it's exposing, like, like a blob of ketchup on a super white T-shirt. You just can't not, but look, you just can't not look at it, right? And, that, and that's the reality of what the law is doing here. It's exposing the sinfulness of the Israelites. And so they please stop doing it. And this is exactly why God gave the law. If you read the New Testament and you read Paul, you're going to realize that God, God gave the law because the law teaches us. What does it teach us? It teaches us that we need grace. It teaches us that we can't get up the mountain. So if you're taking notes, Mount Sinai not only was terrible, it was also inaccessible. Did you notice that? The author wants that to be seen very clearly. Like, you can't get up this mountain. And and the point is, is that the law was never meant to deliver us to God. It can't. It won't. What the law was supposed to do was to show us that we need grace. Such a chasm, or such is the chasm that divides a holy God from a sinful man. That's what Mount Sinai is a symbol of. It reminds us of the fact that without God's divine intervention, we are at the bottom of a terrifying mountain where we cannot climb. Such is the place that we find ourselves in our sin, in our brokenness. But the fourth, thing, the fourth thing we're supposed to learn about Mount Sinai is that it was, write it down, Mount Sinai was ineffectual. So God gave, this is so interesting, right? God gave these rules to the Israelites, but he didn't give them the rules so that they could figure out how to do everything and get back to God. The New Testament tells us he gave us the rules. He gave them the rules to show them that they have no ability to follow the rules, The rules are our schoolmaster to drive us, to show us our need for God's grace. You guys probably have heard this this famous phrase, run, run, the law commands but gives you neither feet nor hands. Better news, the gospel brings, it bids you fly and gives you wings. The law is burdensome because the law does not give us the power to accomplish what the law demands. The law exposes for us the reality of God's righteous holiness. Yet it does not show us how we can be grafted back into him or forgiven or made whole. The law simply reveals our brokenness. It it exposes our fig leaves. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. I'm reading it in the NLT version because it's a little easier to understand. He says, well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting was wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But listen to this. This is so interesting. But sin used this commandment to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. In other words, sin used the rules like an agent for its own will. Okay? Like, like think about... Um, the, the ring on Lord of the Rings. The, 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 the ring has a will, and that ring is using Frodo and using these other characters in order to, to accomplish its will. So he's, Paul's saying that sin, his, its will is to get you to sin, and in order to do that, it uses the rules to make you sin more. You ever notice if someone says not to do something, you really want to do it? That's, that's the law making you want to sin more. He says, at one time I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life. So, here's my point. Here's the point of the, the text. Okay, Mount Sinai, not only does it reveal to you how far you are from the holiness of God, it does not give you the ability to get back to God. It does not. It does not give you the ability. And I don't want you just to limit this in your mind to like, well, that's Judaism and that's fundamentalism and that's legalism. Okay, here's the reality. Everyone in our world, everyone in our culture is trying to climb the mountain. Everyone is trying to transcend. Everyone's trying to get back to God and they're doing it in their own way and they're doing it miserably because we cannot get to God in our own strength. It's just not possible. A divine rescue is necessary. We are dead and our trespasses and sins at the bottom of a mountain that we cannot climb. 
So that's the bad news. Here's the good news. The text flips over. Now he's going to contrast the other mountain. So let's look at verse 22, Mount Zion. Now he's really going to give us here, he's going to give us just some serious like ammunition to worship God this morning. So I hope you guys are ready to worship God because these realities here he's about to unpack are so valuable. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So he says, Christians, you haven't gone to Mount Sinai. You're not at Mount Sinai. You're not in the law anymore. You've come to this greater mountain and let me tell you what this greater mountain is. It's the new covenant and let me tell you why it's so great. He's gonna give four things about uh, this mountain if you wanna write them down. The first is the mountain of Zion is, big word, eschatological. I just throw in big words because I really want you guys to be deceived and think I'm smart. That's the only reason I do that. Uh, eschatological. No, I'm joking. Eschatological means future realities. It's what's coming. It's the things God is going to do. So the first is the mountain of Zion is eschatological. He says, there's a lot of language to unpack in here. He says, you have come to, notice, Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. What is Mount Zion? What is the significance of that? If you guys have read your Old Testament, you know Mount Zion was uh, the place that David overtook um, and ultimately built the temple on, okay? Mount Zion was where Jerusalem was built. It was the very tip of, of, of the Mount uh, Moriah, the, the, the mount that would end up, end up becoming Jerusalem. But it's so much more than that in the Bible. It's so much more than a physical, tangible place. The Mount Zion is type typologically speaking of a much greater reality. It's talking about what? The new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God. Okay, he's saying in this new covenant, you have come to a city, God's city. Now, I'm not gonna take you there because we don't have time, but Revelation 21 tells us about this city. It's not physical Jerusalem. It's not earthly Jerusalem. It's new Jerusalem. It's heavenly Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, it descends out of heaven, prepared for God, and it interfaces with earth. The significance of that is, listen, God always wanted his people in a place. He designed us to be in a place. The ultimate place of God's people is New Jerusalem. It's this new city, this new ecosystem that he is going to create, that he is going to bring out of heaven. So rather than us trying to get up the mountain, God has brought the mountain down to us. And the incarnation, when Jesus came into this world, he began to, 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 to form this new city, this new Jerusalem. And when he comes back, he's gonna recreate it. Okay, this is good news. So we don't have to climb Mount Zion, or pardon me, we don't have to climb Mount Sinai because Zion is coming down to this earth. You know, your future eternal place is not somewhere on a floaty, fluffy cloud. Your eternal place is God's city. God has called you to be in an eternal city, his community with his people where he is the king. That's the whole idea. Heavenly Jerusalem. The Bible could be reduced to or, or, or synthesized as the tale of two cities, the city of Babylon and the city of Jerusalem. These two nations, these two cities, these two systems, which one are you a part of? He's saying, don't forget, you're part of this new city, this new Jerusalem, this new Zion. Now, the second thing, the Mount Zion is joyful. The mountain of Zion is joyful, if you want to write that down. Notice what he says. He says, you have become to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels, this is so cool, to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. Festal gatherings. We use that word all the time, right? You want to come over to my house for a festal gathering? It's going to be very festal, right? I had to look it up. What does that mean? Uh, it's, it's the word used in, in, in the, the, the Jewish world to um, describe the festivals or the festivities, uh, the celebrations of the feasts. So to paraphrase it, he's saying, you, Christian, you, new covenant believer, you have been invited to celebrate with uncountable celestial heavenly beings and party forever. To celebrate. Is anybody else kind of like excited about that? 
That's pretty cool. I mean, wow. Like, we're, we're invited to be part of this eternal party in God's new city, in God's new Jerusalem, where we are going to, with the angels, just celebrate the goodness of God and what he's done forever. Very exciting. You think New York's a city that never sleeps? God's city is the city that never sleeps. Okay? And we're invited into it. Number three, the mountain of Zion is accessible. It's accessible. It's accessible for two reasons. We should, we should ask, how are we able to access this city? Two reasons. Number one, our text says, because Jesus mediated a new covenant. Because Jesus mediated a new covenant. We see that in verse 24. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The reason we have access to this new city is because Jesus instituted or initiated or facilitated or actuated better promises. That's what a covenant is. It's just promises. Two parties, promises made. The old covenant was a promise from God to the nation of Israel. The new covenant is a promise from God to you, but it's not with you. We've talked about this before. This is review. Who is the new covenant a covenant with? Between God the Father and who? You don't sound very confident. God the Son. Thank you. Who, who was that? Good job. Good, good job, Jordan. Somebody's listening. This is, guys, this is really important. The new covenant is not a covenant primarily between God and you. It is not a covenant between God and a nation. It is between God the Father and God the... And you are saved into that covenant by... Oh, that's a good answer. It starts with an F and ends with eighth. You are saved into that covenant by faith. faith. And the Holy Spirit does stuff in that too. Okay. You are saved into this covenant that God the Father made with God the Son. So when he mediated the new covenant, he, he, he actually made the covenant. God the Father made the covenant with God the Son because it's a covenant of grace, not with works. So it's not my faithfulness that merits my place in the covenant. It's Christ's faithfulness. I'm imputed that faithfulness by faith, by trust in it. So he's mediated a new covenant. And that new covenant is sourced not in determination, but in regeneration. And what I mean by that is that we get through this new covenant not because I'm really going to follow the rules and I'm really going to do the right stuff, but because the Holy Spirit has given me new resource, new life, new desires. That's the new covenant. But second reason, bless you, the second reason is because Jesus' blood speaks louder than Abel's. Underline that verse in your Bible, verse 24. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is super cool. What does the blood of Abel speak? Okay, think back, pull up the files in your head. You're reading through the book of Genesis. Cain, the first son of Adam and Eve, kills Abel, the the second son. He kills Abel in cold blood. Why? Because he's jealous, because His sacrifice wasn't acceptable to God, and Abel's was. So Cain let sin, which was crouching like a a predatory animal, he let it consume him, and he kills his brother, and the blood of Abel falls onto the ground and begins to soak into the earth, the very earth that God made, and it's the archetypical sin to destroy the Imago Dei, the very image of God, this valuable, beautiful creature that God made, Abel, has been struck down, and the blood cries out, to God. What does it cry out? Justice. There is a cry in this world for justice. You you may not be hearing it right now because you're not seeing the injustice happening in this world. But the ground itself, the creation itself is telling on humanity. It's calling to the righteous and the holy God to judge, to say, come and bring restitution. Come and bring retribution. Come and pay. Someone has to pay for this blood. The blood of Abel cries out. But here's the good news. Actually, let me give you a little more bad news. You're Cain. I'm Cain. The blood that you have spilled, you're saying, I never killed anybody. Sin kills. Sin kills. Sin destroys. Sin hurts. Someone pays the tab. Your sin not only is a sin against God's holiness and his nature, your sin is and has been paid by someone. 
The sin that you sinned against your parents, the sin that you sinned against your spouse, the sin that you sinned against your brothers and your sisters and your friends, it all costs something. There are victims to sin always, and death is always the outcome. And the blood that is on your hands, the blood that has hit the ground, is calling out to God to bring justice. That's bad news. Now picture Mount Sinai, picture the terror, picture the holiness, picture the severity of a righteous and holy God, and picture yourself with blood on your hands, standing at the foot, standing at the base of that mountain. It's terrifying. But here's the good news. The good news is that the blood of Abel does not cry out as loud as the blood of Christ. What does the blood of Christ cry? The blood of Christ cries out completion, restitution, reconciliation, no condemnation, salvation, redemption. The blood of Christ calls out, it is finished. That's what the blood of Christ calls out. If you are in Christ by faith, the gospel, the good news is, is that the blood that is on your hands is not the loudest voice in the room. If you are in Christ, then the blood of the cross cries out louder and that the the God of the universe is no longer coming to find you to judge you, but he's coming to find you to bring you home. That is the good news of the gospel. But it is only good news if the blood of Christ has been applied to you, meaning you have put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the reality. The blood of Christ speaks louder. And let me ask you, what blood are you tuning into? Is it the blood on your hands or is it the blood on Christ's hands? Which blood is defining the way you live and act and walk and think? Which blood are you tuned into? Is it it the justifying blood of Christ? or the condemning blood on your own hands. Now, let me just quickly go through this. What what do we have access to in this new covenant? First of all, we have access to God's presence. Notice it says, it's so important, uh, to the assembly of the firstborn, verse 23, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. That means that that the, the Christ has mediated this this new covenant which has given us access to God. We're not at the foot of a terrifying mountain anymore. We have access to God. We have access to his presence. We also have access, number two, to his perfection. To his perfection. It says in 23, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That means that those who are in heaven right now, the saints who are in heaven right now, have been made perfect. They've been glorified. That's good news. Number three, we, we've been given access to his preference. I want you to see this, verse 23, uh, into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Okay, that's, that's him referring to the church as the assembly of the firstborn. I thought that was an odd phrase this week. I'm like, I don't hear that phrase very often, assembly of the firstborn. Assembly just means congregation, it's ecclesia. It's the gathering of the firstborn. We, as a church, could be referred to as the gathering of the firstborn. What does that mean? The firstborn means preference. The firstborn is synonymous with honor. It means we're going to receive the greatest inheritance. And the only reason we are all the firstborn is because Christ was the true firstborn. See, he has given us his place with the Father. He's given us the preference of the Father's love. And in him, we now have that place, which is super exciting. We're the gathering of the firstborn. And then D on your notes, or four, uh, uh, no, yeah, D on your notes, and we'll close here. The mountain of Zion is lastly, it's reservable. It's reservable. What I mean by that is he says, notice he says you're enrolled, you're enrolled in this new city. We enrolled our kids in Arrows this year again, which is where they go to school, and when we did it early, and so they're, they're locked in. And when they show up on Monday or whatever the day is that school starts, Becky, I don't know when it is, you tell me. Uh, anyways, when they show up at school, my wife knows, they're going to they're gonna walk out of the car, and there's going to be someone with a clipboard standing in front of that person, and they're going to look on that list, and they're going to go, Myla Peck, Justice Peck, Scout Peck, you've been enrolled. You get to come in. You just, just stop and let this reality hit you for a second. You have been, if you are in Christ, if you are saved by faith, you're born again, you are enrolled in this new heavenly city. Your position, your place on this mountain 
The mountain of God is assured. Isn't that good news? It's good news. And the deceiver, the liar, he cannot access God's book. Your name is written down. This is really good news. So what the author has done here is he's saying, which mountain do you want to go up? Which mountain do you want to stand before? Is it the mountain where God is, is terrifying and, and God is ready to judge you because the blood on the ground is crying out? The mountain that is inaccessible, the mountain is that, that is ineffectual, the mountain you, you cannot get up, or the mountain in which God has come down to man, in which God has made salvation possible. It's a very, very clear contrast of the two covenants. So what, Sam? So what? Okay, here's two things. So apart from Christ... With faith in our own effort, we stand at the foot of the mountain of terror, unholy, unable to climb or approach, having missed the mark and exposed by his word and by the blood on our own hands. So what? So don't let the purpose of Sinai be lost on you. The purpose of this terrifying thing is to remind you that you need the gospel, that you need grace. Okay, well now what? Now what? So that's the so what. What about the now what? Let me just speak to two groups and we'll be done. Number one, to the non-Christians. I want to speak to anyone in here this morning that's not a believer, anyone who's just sort of courting the idea of Christ and Christianity, just checking this all out. Here's what the text would say to you this morning if you're not quite a believer. The text would call you to see the futility of the path that you're on, to admit the fact that you're sowing fig leaves and it's not working to admit the fact that your shame is not coverable, to admit the fact that no matter how much you love yourself, no matter how much you tell yourself that there's no blood on your hands, and no matter how much you tell yourself that you're acceptable and that you're good and that you're good enough and that you're amazing, that you know deep down there's an ache in you that says, no, you're not. You need alien righteousness. You need someone to give you righteousness because what you have inside you is not enough. It's not cutting it. The text this morning is calling the non-believer, begging the non-believer to see that they stand at the foot of a mountain of terror and they stand exposed before a holy and righteous God who's ready to judge because there's blood on their hands and because he's just, he must judge. The text is calling you to see your nakedness, that you are undone like Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, your face down, undone, a man of unclean lips. Before a holy and righteous God, the text would call you, non-Christian, to see that your salvation is not in your determination, it's in his incarnation, meaning you don't get saved by finding a way up the path, up the hill. You get saved when you say yes to the fact that Jesus came down the hill and he's going to carry you back up. That's what Christian faith is. The text would call the non-Christian to say, I'm done, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I'm tired of covering, I'm tired of acting, I'm tired of trying to outpace my guilt and shame, I'm, trying to, I'm tired of trying to out, drown out my shame and my guilt with narcotics or with work or with accomplishments, I'm exhausted, the fig leaves need to come off, God, I receive your covering for me, I take on Mount Zion, give me grace. That's what the text is calling the non-believer to say this morning. Lord, enough with my works. Give me your works. Accredit to me the righteousness of Christ. Because my righteousness is filthy rags. I have nothing to stand before the pure and holy righteous God. Nothing that makes me acceptable. The text would say to the non-believer, there's nothing to fear if you believe the gospel. Here's what John the Apostle said. In his letter, 1 John 4, 18, he said, there is no fear in love. And within the context, he's talking about for those who have believed the gospel. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. There are people in this room, I believe, this morning, that are running from God. And the reason you're running from God is because you feel like whenever you're around God, he makes you feel guilty. The reason is because you feel like whenever whenever you're around God or whenever you talk to God, you feel shame. And and the problem is is that you haven't believed the gospel yet. (laughs) Because perfect love casts out fear. And perfect love is not that we first loved God, but that God first loved us. The problem, listen, I'll make it very simple. The problem is that you're standing at the foot of the wrong mountain. 
You're standing at the base of the terrifying work of the law that's telling you you're not good enough, that's showing you that you're not righteous. And it's true. But the gospel is not a do, it's a done. It's good news. It's saying come to this mountain. Come to this mountain where God's presence has descended, where God has come down to man, where God is bringing his place to us and enter it by faith and by trust. That's the call this morning. The text has something to say to Christians as well, and that is to simply believe and to remember these realities that are already yours. I'll end with this. I, th- this week I was over at Brighton Academy, and, and Teresa, our kids' ministry director, she, she works at Brighton, and, and she showed us our classroom. It was cool to see kind of where she teaches and and, 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 and as she was kind of touring our classroom, she's like, oh, you got to check this out. This is cool. So we go through this, this room, and I'm like expecting to walk into like an office or something. And she takes us into this room, and this room is just totally filled with these tubs and tubs and tubs of toys and activities and crafts. It's just like, it's just like, like if a kid ever got in there, they would just go crazy. I mean, just like wall, to, like ceiling to floor. And she said, this is my resource room. This is my resource room. She's like, I, I, the kids are never allowed in here. I go in. And I grab something and I come out and it's magic. You know, they're like, whoa, Teresa just got all these toys. It's crazy. And then they play with it and then I put it back. Okay. I thought, wow, that's such a cool picture of what it's like to live in the already not yet. Of what it's like to live as a Christian now. We've been given all these resources, all these riches of heaven that are coming. And the way that we get through this hard and difficult and broken life is we go to God, we go to the Holy Spirit, we say, God, would you remind me of the resources that are all mine but yet have not yet fully been realized yet? Like, we're going to go into the room. We're going to be brought into the room. At one point, we're going to go to heaven. We're going to be in this new Jerusalem. All the riches of Christ will be unleashed. We'll get a new body that can actually enjoy it. But for now, we live in this place where we just simply look and we go, there is a room. And I'm going to hook up to that room, and I'm going to live out of the joy of the resources that are in them. Every time that you choose to put the gospel before your eyes and believe it, you're coming to the resource room. And you're going, I, I'm struggling today. I'm having a hard time today. God, will you remind me of a truth of what is mine in Christ? And that's what our text has done this morning, hasn't it? You're enrolled in New Jerusalem. You're enrolled. You're known. You're loved. You've been made perfect by Christ. These are, these are good truths. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for passages like this that are, that are maybe review for some of us, but for some of us in this room, maybe it's the first time they've ever heard this. But I know, I know that this morning there are people here that are exhausted, Christians and non-Christians, because they keep coming back to the wrong mountain. They keep trying to climb. They keep trying to do enough. They keep trying to sow fig leaves. And so, God, my prayer this morning is very simple, that for for Christian and non-Christian, that we would all believe the gospel this morning and that we would all live into the riches of Christ instead of our own works. Lord, that we would find freedom as we are undone. Lord, that we could admit to ourselves and to others that we are broken, that we are not enough, that our shame could be exposed with the light and that we could have so much confidence in the gospel that, that we would admit our brokenness because we know we're covered, because we know we're forgiven. So I just pray the gospel over this family of mine, Lord, this morning, this church body. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you so much for your grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.